Hey, everybody, welcome to Narrative Live. It's a Tuesday evening on a show we're titling The Fight of Our Lives, not because we're thinking it's the fight of our lives, but it is becoming that, but rather because of the Texas Democrats, which have sort of thrown down the gauntlets on American politics and set the stage for the next election in 2022. And with me today, Nina Burley, who's the author as of, a, of a book as recently out called Virus, which we uh, spoke about on the show before. But you're here today as a regular political correspondent and because you took an amazing road trip through Michigan recently. Uh, and tell us a little bit more about that. Well, I went out there because I've been interested in the, the governor kidnap plot, as you may or may not remember, because so many crazy things have happened since then. But in October, 14 men were arrested, some charged in the state of Michigan and some start charged by the federal government of domestic terrorism in regards to a, a plot they had to uh, a sinister and ridiculous plot to in, to uh, kidnap governor, the hated female governor of the state of Michigan and either uh, execute her on television or uh, put her on a boat and float it out into the middle of Lake Michigan and take the engine off. And uh, yeah, so that's, I had many adventures uh, running around in that world and I can tell you about them. It was really interesting when we when that happened and you said to me, you first let me know that they were called the Heartland Terrorists, I think they were called, or maybe it wasn't the Terrorists. But I call it the Heartland. It's a Heartland story. Mm. Heart, Heartland, H-A-R-T land, Michigan is where one of the defendants lives but that area eastern that sort of southeastern area michigan is where many of them come from and of course heartland is to me what's interesting about this one of the many aspects that makes it interesting is what is going on in the heartland of our nation mm. where people are starting to just drift into fascism with without question so that's what i was doing out there and it was i learned a lot and there's more to understand but yeah it fits in so well with what we're doing tonight which is understanding this what seems to be a real change of of mood in the country that happened today and not only did joe biden provide everyone with incredibly rousing speech about the importance of the next election and the battle lines that have been drawn for the next election but we also had those texas democrats fleeing their country really fleeing, fleeing the country fleeing their state in order to avoid Texas is a country it is it feels like it sometimes they'll tell you that down there yeah and so they're fleeing their state because they just uh, are being in, in broad daylight being having their votes stolen from them and their constituents votes stolen from them in what must be the most you know unbelievably brazen attack on democracy ever and it certainly has brought america to to a very fraught situation which we're in right now so tonight's show we're going to do three things we're going to talk a little bit about biden's speech in the second third of the show, Joe Dempsey, one of our favorite researchers, is going to be here. He's got a big exclusive where he's going to talk about one of the people we haven't heard about yet from the insurrection, one of the team leaders of the Oath Keepers. It's, an, it's a person that's only been identified as person number 10 in the indictments. And tonight, uh, we're going to reveal who Joe and I think it re he really is. And it's a really interesting person. It'll add a lot of dimension to the conversation we're having. And then we'll hear a lot more about your trip to Michigan, all of which sounds like a really interesting show around the issues of the fight of our lives, which is really what Joe Biden was talking about today. Underpinning his entire speech was the notion that democracy was being challenged in a way that had never been challenged before. And he was pretty, I thought, rousing. Did you get a chance to listen to the speech? I did. Yes, I did. And I think it is rousing. I, I say this to, to my Bernie bro brother often. I think Biden is the man for the hour at the at this hour. He, we can't, since we can't elect a female or a, um, 
person of color at this point in time, or they, the Democrats thought they couldn't. He was the man of the hour, and he has stepped into that role. He's doing, he's doing, I think, what needs to be done, but I, it's rousing is one thing, but action is another. And I think that no mention of Washington, D.C. statehood, which the, the lieutenant governor of Pennsylvania criticized him for, John Fetterman, and the, the glaring sort of absence of discussion of this mm. the filibuster which is going to all you can rouse the rabble all you want to rouse the people all you want but if you have process in washington that can't be that can't be got around mm. and your your democrats in washington aren't wielding power with the the way that the the republicans were for the last connell was in the senate for the last uh, decade you're going to have a problem. And I don't see how they get to 20, past 2022 without seizing the moment. And they're not seizing the moment. I'm sorry to say, I do think that his, it, the time for his speech was now, obviously, mm. the speech is, it's good to speak out. And it's good that the Texans are in, are in the capital, the nation's capital, reminding everybody of what's going on down there and how dire it is. But I think if he's going to make a speech like that, and he did say, I call on everyone, right? Mm -hmm. I call on, on, on communities, leaders, decent-minded Republicans, if they can still be found, to get behind this and stop what they're doing. Stop this, uh, this slide into, into Slavic-style despotism, which is what the Trumpers really stand for, Russian despotism. And, and so, but I don't think that he... I, I don't know. Will all the corporate will all the corporate leaders in this country get behind that and say we're going to stop giving you money, the pipeline, the yeah. fuel for the Republicans? Are we going to stop that fuel? It was really um, short on it, short on action, but uh, it was pretty stirring. Let's listen to some of it. Here's a clip. Make no mistake, bullies and merchants of fear, peddlers of lies, are threatening the very foundation of our country. Gives me no pleasure to say this. I never thought in my entire career I'd ever have to say it. But I swore an oath to you, to God, to preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution. And that's an oath that forms a sacred trust to defend America against all threats, both foreign and domestic. The assault on free and fair elections is just such a threat, literally. I've said it before. We're facing the most significant test of our democracy since the Civil War. That's not hyperbole. Since the Civil War. The Confederates, back then, never breached the Capitol, as insurrectionists did on January the 6th. I'm not saying this to alarm you. I'm saying this because you should be alarmed. By the way, we were late joining the, the feed on my feed on, on Zev Shalev's uh, Twitter account, but we're there now. So for those of you who are joining us mid-progress, I apologize for not being there at the start of the show, but here we are again. Nina Berlee is with me. We're going through the speech today with Joe, uh, that Joe Biden rather stirringly said that he had, what was the line at the end there? I'm not saying this to alarm you, but you should be alarmed. That's, this is the president of the United States who's generally quite measured making a, quite a statement mm -hmm. to Americans to take note of what's happening in America. Emergency, emergency. Those of us who've been paying close attention to this, and I know you have, Zev, since the beginning of his term, the beginning of the, the current House term, mm -hmm. have been waiting for, for them to 
understand or, or to behave as if they understand that this is an emergency. The ambulances are screaming. And where is the, the daily hearing on 1-6 televised that where are the CEOs of American corporations getting behind putting their money where their mouths are or were on 1-6 and stopping the pipeline? That would stop it immediately. You're never going to get Laura Ingraham and Tucker Carlson to stop trashing the vaccines on Fox, that obviously is a lost cause. So you have millions of people misguided there and you will never get them to stop spewing the big lie. One of the things I had an opportunity to do in Michigan was spend an hour and a half driving, listening to the Sean Hannity radio program on Sirius XM. Oh, sorry about that. And, um, yeah, but I had to, somebody had to do it. I, I know there are people out there who do that for a living. I, I don't, but it's, it's shocking really because you're out there in the hinterland and you hear this man who is a multimillionaire, who is a member of the coastal elite, if anybody is, who has been vaccinated, no doubt, as his entire family, I'm sure, has, and all everyone he knows and associates with, letting Ben Carson spew these canards about how vaccinations are, this, these COVID vaccinations are the first step towards totalitarianism. So, the media on the right is in lockstep with these four or five talking points that they need, the big lie, the lie about paranoia, about totalitarianism, paranoia about 2A, and the left or the progressives or the center is not in lockstep. So yes, the president coming forward and making a speech like this forces those communications channels to get on board with this. But is it going to break through the silo of the big lie? Does it stop Mitch McConnell from standing up against HR1 for the president to say this? His power is limited. I think that it has to come from the donors. It has to come from these Republican, the, the money that is, that's, that is their lifeblood has to be cut off That's at, at the federal level, because there's actually not that much that they can do about the states. It's too bad that the Democrats weren't fighting those legislative battles or winning them over the last 10 or 15 years. Obviously, we know that this takeover has been a long time coming. You read Jane Mayer's book, Dark Money. It's been decades that these John Birchers and the right-wingers were up there with their money bags and the Koch brothers plotting this ever since Obama got elected and before the CNP that you've had, I know you've had people on this program talking about these people have been, they have a passionate intensity that has been, they've been activated for a long time. So it's a bit late to start looking at the state legislatures, the shocking Texas law that they've just passed allowing citizens to um, basically putting a bounty on women who get abortions legally, and also people who drive them there and people who help them get around is so outrageous. And that's the that's been the tone of these legislature legislators for a very long time. So the money at the federal level is the only I think they have the, the CEOs have to step up and and protect this country because mm. <laughs> It ain't going to be the same after 2022, and it certainly won't be the same after 2024 if they don't. And Biden was pretty good on this today. I think he drew a distinction which people really have to take note of. He, he said it's not so much about who, who gets to vote. It's about who gets to count the vote. And that's why this fight has become so significant. It's taking on a new and literally pernicious forms. 
It's no longer just about who gets to vote or making it easier for eligible voters to vote. It's about who gets to count the vote. Who gets to count whether or not your vote counted at all. It's about moving from independent election administrators who work for the people to polarized state legislatures and partisan actors who work for political parties. To me, this is simple. This is election subversion. It's the most dangerous threat to voting and the integrity of free and fair elections in our history. Never before have they decided who gets to count, what votes count. Some state. So that's a, a powerful statement there, and I think it's really important. People realize that there's so much at stake. This isn't about voters' rights for a small group of people. This is about democracy in total. This is about all our democracy and all our rights to vote, because when we don't have democracy, none of us have a vote that counts at the end of the day. We're in a fascist world, and the fascists get to rule the world. We don't have a vote then. Nobody does. So I thought that distinction was really important. Yeah, I think that is, he's, he's saying the right things, Zev, and they needed to be said, and they need to be said repeatedly. But it's concerning that just the fact that they were able to amplify the big lie to such an extent mm. now has all they needed to do was put was seed doubt into the electoral system in this country. Once you put, once you start playing that game and go down that road, you you have a problem. The other side isn't going to believe that that they're not being cheated. And now that they're actually putting laws in place to allow for cheating to happen, right. um, again, you got to go back to that HR one, and they have to there so, something has to be done in Washington. It has to be a a federal act. And I I don't know if they have the Schumer and and the Biden administration have the, the spine to, to get up there and, and make it happen. And it, it'll be cataclysmic and it will be a big deal if they kick the filibuster out or, or try something else to get those. But they have to I, do I it. I do think Manchin will do this. I do think Manchin will come around on HR1. It may not be as tied to dark money as it's currently exists, but it may at least allow the rest of the evening of the of the playing field to happen. But So I think Manchin will come along on that, but it's still squeaky if, the, if they can get through that. And cinema may not join, and, and who knows how, how many of them get any Republicans to even go in that direction. And the filibuster will be a huge thing, even to remove, with one exception like this, will just be very difficult for the country. This is uh, Biden saying about how to prepare for 2022. And you're right, he doesn't talk much about what, what is actually going to be happening, but here's some of that. Just like we did in 2020, we have to prepare for 2022. We'll engage in an all-out effort to educate voters about the changing laws, register them to vote, and then get the vote out. We'll encourage people to run for office themselves at every level. We'll be asking my Republican friends in Congress and states and cities and counties to stand up for God's sake and help prevent this concerted effort to undermine our election and the sacred right to vote. Have you no shame? Whether it's stopping foreign interference in our elections or the spread of disinformation from within, we have to work together. Vice President Harris and I will be making it clear that there's real peril in making raw power rather than the idea of liberty, the centerpiece of the common life. Founders understood this. The women of Seneca Falls understood this. The brave, heroic foot soldiers of the Civil Rights Movement understood this. So must we. 
This isn't about Democrats or Republicans. It's literally about who we are as Americans. It's that basic. It's about the kind of country we want today, the kind of country we want for our children and grandchildren tomorrow. And quite frankly, the whole world is watching. Now, I've heard that line before from presidents, and uh, the whole world watches sometimes as America doesn't do enough. And so there's a lot of good promise there in what he's saying. But truthfully, what he's saying is that the voters have to do it. And the voters are going to have to do a hell of a lot more than they did in 2020 because mm-hmm. the voters, the, the, the suppression laws are so tough. They really mm-hmm. are tough to get be beyond those for next year. There has to be an even bigger push than we had in 2020, which seems somewhat insurmountable. You have to get people activated. And mm-hmm. obviously, Trump was an activating factor in the mm-hmm. last election. The loathing of Trump, I think, brought a lot of people out. Yeah. In 2022, you might not have that. These House races usually go to the other party, right, in, uh, in the midterms. So they have to act quickly mm-hmm. if they are going to do anything because they are already, they, the Republicans, are already rewriting history on that 1-6 fascist insurrection. Right. And you can't, in a year or two, it won't, be, it won't be an issue anymore. And as I learned in Michigan, and as your next guest is going to talk about, I think, with regards to the 1-6 suspects, these guys aren't going anywhere. And mm-hmm. they're, they're armed and dangerous to 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 the society in a way that we've never really seen before where they are targeting the fantasy of poli- of putting politicians on trial or executing them like like they do in uh, or like they did in I guess the French Revolution that's what they that's what they think they're doing that's what they're trying to they're trying to portray themselves as revolutionaries that fantasy it was inches away from becoming reality in, in on one six. And mm-hmm. we, you talk. He talked about what Biden just talked about. Citizens need to run for office. They need to step up. The threat to the real threat to politicians right now from political violence in this country is a deterrent. It has to be. It's a de facto deterrent to people to speaking out. And these women in Michigan, they are statewide office holders. They're not even your local your local city councilman or something. Those people were afraid for their lives. It, they had their homes were doxed out. How many police cars do have to be parked in front of somebody's house to keep these mobs away if they start to come forward? Or people who are armed in with ballistic armor, as these guys in Michigan were, ammo machine guns. It's an actual emergency. And if the house does not, they can't get behind it and really show that this one six thing was was a dire situation. And they let the Republicans rewrite that into it was Antifa, or they were just visiting the Capitol, exercising their rights as nice little nice visitors to Washington, D.C. If they let them rewrite that and the voters of this country, those who are able to vote and who are motivated to vote, don't come out recognizing that's what's on the other side, then we have a problem. So they need to make this emergency a a piece of news every single day. And the media really has to get involved. And I've been a member of the mainstream media for a long time. I'm not quite doing that right now, but those bookers on, and you've been there, those bookers who, who, who call them, they still call the shots on the national discourse mm-hmm. on Sunday mornings, they don't have somebody in there running video from that 
insurrection every Sunday morning and really the morning shows. Everybody should be running that video all the time and it should come out of the House committee, the select committee that Pelosi, they, they, need to, they needed to start doing that on January 22nd of mm-hmm. 2021, in yeah. my view. Yeah, everything's running too late. There's no doubt about it. That just makes the urgency so much more urgent. It's interesting what you're talking about, the chill in terms of of feeling like there's a censorship going on. There was a bill passed in Oklahoma today where even teachers who even discuss racism with their students could lose their license. I mean, we've gotten to the point where it's just there's so much restriction on what you can say, how you can say it, especially in those red states that we're beginning to see just a complete chill over the freedom of speech. We will come back after this commercial break and Joe Dempsey will be with us. He's got some really big news on the insurrection. We're going to look at some video, as you pointed out, from January the 6th and see if we can identify who one of the key players were on January the 6th that has not yet been identified by anybody else. That's coming up next on Narrative. Hey there, friends. It's Zeb from Narrative. If you were with us on Friday night, you would have heard Greg Oliar go on and on about the delicious taste of the bacon that comes with a moink box. And of course, you can enjoy the taste of that bacon yourself. Moink delivers grass-fed and grass-finished beef and lamb, pastured pork and chicken, and wild-caught Alaskan salmon direct to your door, helping family farms become financially independent outside of big agriculture. Their animals are raised outdoors, their fish swim wild in the ocean, and Moink meat is free of antibiotics, hormones, sugar, and all the other junk you find prepackaged in the meat aisle. With Moink, you get all the highest quality meat you've ever tasted while supporting real family farms. Sign up at moinkbox.com slash narrative, N-A-R-A-T-I-V, to get a year of bacon for free. Yes, you heard it right, for free. And then you can also pick what meats you want delivered with your first box. Change what you get every month if you want or cancel at any time. Moink meat is so tender and delicious, I know you'll love it. Moink was founded by an eighth-generation farmer who was featured on Shark Tank. Host Kevin O'Leary said it was the best bacon he'd ever tasted, and Jamie Smirnoff, creator of the Ring Video Doorbell, also invested in Moink. They guarantee you'll say, oink, I'm just so happy I got moinked. I'm positive you will be too. Join the Moink movement today. Go to themoinkbox.com slash narrative right now, and listeners and viewers to the show get free bacon for a year. That's one year of the best bacon you'll ever taste, but for a limited time only. Spelt moink, M-O-I-N-K, box.com slash narrative, N-A-R-A-T-I-V. That's moinkbox.com slash narrative. Hey there, friends back everybody and hi joe dempsey and nice to see you again welcome back to the show hi zeb thanks for having me good to see you you you've never met nina but now you are about to so glad to be able to introduce both of you joe is one of the uh, most impressive researchers i've seen on twitter lately and joe you've broken some big news tonight you're about to break some big news tonight because ever since we first started talking and looking at the indictments of the particularly the oath keepers group in in on january the 6th there's been one mystery that we we haven't been able to figure out it has been bugging you for months literally and that is who the identity of person number 10 is in one of the indictments so tell us a little bit about why you're so curious about uh, person number 10. because person number 10 had 13 different contacts in terms of phone calls on january 6th a lot of the contacts that person 10 had was with stuart Rhodes directly as well as Joshua James, who was indicted within the uh, the Oath Keepers indictment. Joshua James was also one of the golf cart drivers who was uh, present at the Capitol on January 6th and was also uh, doing a security detail for Roger Stone on January You know, Joe, I'm I'm having a little bit of trouble hearing you clearly. Can you get a little closer to your microphone and then that'll make it a little easier? Is this this better? Yes, it's better. Yeah, thank you. So 
13 phone calls in one day to two of the key people in, in January the 6th. That's a big deal. Let's look at some of the slides that we have around who this person is. So uh, you mentioned first, oh, sorry, what's his name again? Stuart Rhodes. D. Rhodes, right. Now, so Stuart Rhodes is a He's a well-known figure in this particular January the 6th thing because he's the head of the Oath Keepers. He's got a history with people like Rand Paul and Ron Paul. There's a picture of him and I'll put you in here. So that's him over there. You noticed that he is mentioned in one of the indictments. He's, and mentioned, he's mentioned in the indictments as person one. Okay. And so that's interesting. So he is person one and he has conversations with person 10 and, and he's among those 13 calls that they have during that day. Several of them, or at least three of them, happened between... Stuart and, uh, and person number 10. Is that correct? Yes, that's correct. Okay. What we're looking at right now is the third superseding indictment of the Oath Keepers. And this is something that I noticed changed in March. In March, the third superseding indictment added this line here, 13, where it says person one named person 10 to be the leader of his group's operations in Washington, DC. So if that's the case, that's when I really wanted to find out who person 10 was because person 10 has been named in this indictment as the leader. Right. One of the things that I wanna be very clear about is this information that we're looking at right now does not mean that these two people have been charged with anything. They're not actually listed as co-conspirators. They're simply listed in a portion of the indictment that says what the background of the Oath Keepers militia is. So that's really important, of course, that they're not co-conspirators. They could be collaborating, they could be forming for the police, or, or they could just be individuals that are just happen to be mentioned in the indictments. I want to mention what's really important there is that person number 10 was, what do you call him, the team leader, or, or is there a specific name that you, or a specific title that he had for the day? Yeah, it, it just says that person one named person 10 to be the leader of his group's operations. So he was considered the leader of the operation on January 6th for wherever the boots on the ground were. And so that's, a, that's very important, trying to figure out who person number 10 is. This looks a little weird uh, on the screen right now, but there's Stuart on the one side, Stuart Rhodes, the head of the Oath Keepers. And on the right there is Joshua James. He's one of the Oath Keepers. We see him a lot around, around Roger Stone. Let me pull this up on a full screen so you can see where we've had him before. There he is in, in I, I don't know what they call these things, the gators, I think is what they call those uh, sleeves that go up there up their face, so they can't really see who they are. But you can see the Oath Keeper hat uh, above him, and he becomes a pretty distinctive figure. You see him a lot in coverage of January the 6th, and there he is with Roger Stone the night before on January the 5th. So those are important pictures. And who is Joshua James to, to Stuart Rhodes? As far as I know, I don't know any direct connection between the two of them at this point. I just know that James is one of the names that is listed as a co-conspirator. Okay. But they do have a connection. I think that they're both, I think that Wolf, one thing, they're, he's an Oath Keeper, so he obviously yeah. knows him from that. But also, that and so we're trying to figure out now who person number 10 is. You've done a very, very good job of going through your all these indictments and identifying some key characteristics around who person number 10 is. I'm going to disappoint you and say that I don't have the audio clips we'd spoken about okay. before, but we're going to talk about them. But I okay. do have the video clip, um, okay. and we'll get to that in a second. But uh, let's go through these individually if we can. So for one thing, we've mentioned there's 13 calls on January the 6th between person 10 and other people, including Stuart Rhodes and Joshua James. But we also found out that his nickname was Whip. How did you yes. find out his nickname was Whip? So I've been listening to some of the interviews that Stuart Rhodes has been doing. He did, and like I said, in March, things seem to have changed because that third superseding indictment now adds person 10. Also in March, on March 15th, Stuart Rhodes did an interview with the Gateway Pundit. And in that interview, he said that my team lead, his name is Whip, was the team lead for the day on January 6th. He also said in that interview that his team lead was an explosives expert and former Blackwater team member. 
So those are big details for us to take note of because we now know that he's a team leader. We know he's an ex-Blackwater person. I don't know if that connects him to Eric Prince in any way directly, but it's certainly interesting that he's a contractor for Blackwater and an explosives expert. Interesting you know, skill to have. Also a former combat veteran, as many of these people are. And we also found out that he works for a company called Global and Escalade Services. Is that correct? That's correct. So again, in this interview that he did with the Gateway Pundit, he, he Stuart Rhodes sort of outlines all of this uh, in terms of who Whip is. He says that he's a former combat veteran. He's trying to sort of big him up, if you will, and say kind of what his skills are and why he would make a good team leader. Okay. Also, I, I found another interview. I just want to stay on this interview for one second. Yeah, sure. This interview was done in March, and it was March 15th. The third superseding indictment came down March 31st. So it's just 16 days after that interview happened. So I don't know if he's trying to sort of set the stage and sort of introduce certain people to the fact that, hey, these indictments are coming, additional members uh, may be named, but this is something uh, that he did just before that third superseding indictment. That's really interesting, okay. We are gonna show you now this picture. This is January the 5th, if I'm not mistaken. And, yes. and this is him on the very left here, right? This is who That's think correct. This is Whip on the, on the very left. Now, these other people are also recognizable faces to those of us that have been spending too much time looking at these faces. One, the person next to him is, is Sal Greco, right? A, a New York police officer? That's correct. And then Roger Stone, we all know. The guy with the Roger Stone sweatshirt, I'm not sure who that is. But if you look between Roger Stone and Sal Greco, there you can see that uh, familiar gator of Joshua James. Yeah. So he's there as well, guarding uh, yeah. Stone. So uh, this it, was this is okay. a picture from January 5th, and I believe that this was outside the Supreme Court. One of the things that's interesting about the conversation that is in a different interview that Whip did with Stuart Rhodes, Whip states that he actually arrived in uh, Washington, D.C. on January 4th because he had additional details to do prior to January 6th. So there was some security detail work that he needed to do between the 4th and the 6th. This is January 5th. And that appears to be Whip, right? Person time. The other reason we know uh, he was there is this Washington Post article. Tell us a little bit more about this article and and why it's so yeah. significant. This is an article that goes back from Washington Post that goes back, I believe, to when the Oath Keepers were doing a an operation, a security detail operation in Louisville, Kentucky. I believe this goes back to October. In this Washington Post article, you can see that they had a conversation, whoever was writing it had a conversation with Mike, who goes by Whip, but refused to give his name. Right. Um, so he goes, it says here, one of the Oath Keepers, few black members, an army veteran and former Indianapolis police officer named Mike, I was allowed to speak to the news media. Mike, who goes by the name of Whip, but refused to give his last name for fear that his private security employer would reprimand him, joined the group several years ago and was leading the field operations in Louisville. So yeah. a significant player there. Yes, and, and Louisville is a significant part of this uh, story as well, because in Louisville at the time, there was a, the Oath Keepers had done a security detail to guard a place called Bader's Food Mart. It's like a gas station convenience store. And as they were sort of guarding that facility, we can also see Whip was present uh, at that time as well. We've identified that there's a, a team leader within the Oath Keepers called Whip, who's got this extensive history of being Blackwater, who's in on the ground leading the team in Louisville, who's pretty close to, to Stuart Rhodes and to Joshua James. And we know he was there on January the 5th, supporting and guarding Roger Stone. Yes. 
but we don't know what he was doing yet on January the 6th. So let's explain how right. you believe that uh, he was part of the stack. Everyone remembers there's an Oathkeeper stack, right, of, of maybe uh, seven or eight, maybe even more Oathkeepers who do who manage to get inside the capital itself and in the rotunda itself. Here's a picture from above of all of those people. They're all labeled and you can see them all in military fatigue with their helmets there. This is taken from inside, so, and this is part of the indictment itself. So explain to right. everyone so what Whip, the relationship is with this group of people. Whip is not in the stack. Whip is off-site. Whip is not actually at the Capitol. I don't believe that Whip ever actually entered the Capitol. What does sort of tie these together is the fact that Jessica Watkins, who was the leader of this stack, and she's there in that blue um, box there, yeah. She sent a message that was received by Whip, and she and Whip had text conversations according to the fourth superseding indictment. In between the third superseding indictment and the fourth superseding indictment, there's a conversation or there's information relative to Watkins having texted a recruit and Watkins having having conversations with an individual. So when, when we look at the fourth superseding indictment, which is what we see here, you can see that second highlighted portion on November 9th. It says, in describing the program to person 10, Watkins says it's a military-style basic here in Ohio. This is different than the third superseding indictment in which it says Watkins told another individual. So we can right. see the progression that the DOJ is sort of making this distinction between the third and the fourth superseding indictments about this particular individual. It goes from another individual to being named as person 10. Right. And there's a distinction between individual and recruit as well, yes. which is important to, to remind everyone. So you, right. your contention is that WIP is the team leader of this group, yes. of the stack, as they march into uh, the Capitol, but not with them necessarily, Correct. with them on a group chat system called, uh, was it called Zello or something Zello. like that? Zello. That's yeah. correct. They were using a signal chat called Zello. There was a dedicated um, line of communication for that day. What I think in terms of the, the, the significance between the word recruit and individual, from a recruit perspective, that's somebody that you want to bring into your organization. They didn't say that within the indictment. That leads me to believe that they already knew each other. So I started to look to see whether or not they had any connection. In terms of the fact that they WIP was there in Louisville, Kentucky during that protection of the bait, and, and all of this was in, they were in Kentucky guarding this building because the, the owner of the building had threats against it in the sense that there would be racial tensions in Louisville as a result of prosecutors not wanting to file any charges against the police who shot Breonna Taylor. That's why they were in Louisville. Right. So I also found that Jessica Watkins, too, was in Louisville at the same time. Mm. So if both of those Oath Keepers were in Louisville at the same time, and in that indictment, one of them is referred to as, somebody's referred to as a recruit, somebody's referred to as an individual. That led me to believe that they may have known each other prior. And if they had, they may have come across each other in Louisville. Because it wasn't that big a group ultimately in Louisville. Now there is a piece of tape with Stuart Rhodes who is live streaming and it, it looks to us like he catches individual number 10 by, by surprise, but he gets him on camera. The sound is, is a little hard to hear, but I've boosted it as best as I can. And this is who you believe is individual 10. And let's take a look at, at, uh, at that video. You know, right. too late, man. You're already on camera. Tell them what we're here and what we're doing. Uh, we're doing security for 
Okay. And so what's your background and why are you here with us? Why are you here with us, Keeper? I'm a military guy. Um, then I was a contractor. Then I was a police officer and now I'm a contractor. And, um, I believe in this. So we got people downtown saying we're a bunch of white militia, which is kind of funny, considering you're a black team leader. So th those who don't know, my national vice president, Greg McWhorter, is a black cop out of Montana. So we're not just white guys. We're also, we got all races. we got Mexicans, blacks, whites, you know, everything. I'm, I'm a quarter Mexican myself. So anyway, what do you think about, like, like when you first heard about Escobar, what do you think? You weren't sure about us either because of all the crap you heard, right? Yeah, I thought it was because of, because of what? We root out. Anybody who identifies the white nationalists, we root them out of here. So, but you've been with us, you were with us in Hurricane Harvey. Yeah, that was what? 2017? Yeah, 2017. Yeah. I don't have issue with Oath Keepers. The Hendy Carries. Just said that the, the good organization is no beef with the Oath Keepers at the end there. So, that's surprising to me because you don't really expect there to be, maybe I'm wrong, but I didn't expect there to be uh, black people in charge of teams in the insurrection. Is that something that surprised you or is it just, what, what do you think is going on with all that? It did surprise me, but I also think it's, I'm not really sure what to think, to be quite honest. I think yeah. that they met in, at Hurricane Harvey, as they sort of said in that video, and I think that there are some altruistic reasons for them being there in terms of providing support and providing goods and services to folks. Uh, that need it because, quite frankly, they were devastated by a hurricane. So I do understand wanting to be there on mission to to provide that support. This I don't understand. I'm not 100% certain um, exactly what Whip is sort of in terms of what he knows and, and how much information he can provide and, and really if he understands what the true mission of the Oath Keepers are as others see it. 